St. James. Let me make sure my mic's on. Welcome, you guys, to St. James, and this is the live stream service. So, uh, on behalf of everybody who's in the room right now, uh, hi, if you're watching on the live stream. Uh, announcements uh, check out the Mercy Ministry announcements, um, Thanksgiving Day stuff. A lot of you probably got email about that. Um, that's coming up here. So, if you have something that you're contributing to the uh, Glen Carbon Elementary School uh, dinner, then bring that here to the church as soon as possible. Today's the last day to drop off Operation Christmas Box boxes. Um, Chuck and I and Larry have been working on a podcast called Craving Answers, Craving God. It's about questions that people uh, would have about faith. Uh, it's uh, unbelievers who are looking at uh, questions about God, Christians who believe but don't know why they believe, uh, we talk about uh, stuff like that. We just finished recording our fifth episode this week, so I think that two of them are out. So if you look at, on iTunes or uh, uh, Spotify or Audible or Amazon Music, uh, you should be able to uh, find it there, so check it out. And uh, let me know what you think, too, because so, we'd like to improve it. Also, um, uh, CCLS, that's the other thing I want to say. The uh, Christ Community Lutheran School is going to be here. Matt Hainer is going to be here today. And he and Will are going to talk about uh, the micro school concept. And uh, that's at 11.30. You guys can come back for that if you would like. If you don't want to, though, it's going to be live streamed on the YouTube channel. If you watch it on the YouTube channel and you have questions about anything uh, that they say, text them to me. My phone number's on the back of the bulletin. And I'll pass those along to Matt and Will. So that's all I have by way of announcement. So uh, let's go ahead and stand, and we will begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us confess our sin to God our Father. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. We pour out our souls to you, because by our own efforts we have failed. Nothing we have tried has worked. We have tried again and again, and still we have failed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. Save us from the embarrassment of our failure. Save us from envying those who have apparently succeeded. Grant us some signs of success that we not always be ashamed. O Lord of hosts, look on the affliction of your servants and remember us. You know our need. You know our struggles, our brokenness, our sins. You know that without your mercy, we can do nothing. Grant us mercy for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. 
Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. From Psalm 143, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. I forgot the, uh, another announcement before we read the Old Testament reading. Uh, so, um, if you, so because of the CCLS presentation today, we won't have adult Bible study, and we will not have youth confirmation. Uh, those will be pushed back till next week. We will, however, still have new members class tonight at six, if, anybody's, uh, if any of you come to that or are interested in coming. Okay, the Old Testament reading is a prophecy from Zephaniah 1, and it's about the day of the Lord. We've been thinking about this as the end of the church year, so we're thinking about uh, the return of Jesus. Uh, Zephaniah 1, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, so uh, ironically and tragically and brutally, uh, here, the day the Lord's sacrifice, are the, is God himself is going to sacrifice the religious people who in their pride have not actually turned to him. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. And that's a religious thing. That's not like foreign clothes are bad. That's allying yourself with foreign gods reflected in your clothing. Not you, but them in the ancient days. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from 1 Thessalonians 5. Remember last week we read the back part of 1 Thessalonians 4. This comes right on the heels of this. Uh, Paul too, talking about the return of Jesus. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And while people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are, you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Crown him with me. 
Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 25th chapter. A, a couple quick uh, editorial notes before we get started here. Uh, some of you probably already know this. This is the parable of the talents we're going to look at. Uh, talents, uh, it's, a, it's a unit of weight. We talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant a, a month or so ago. And remember, he owed like 100 talents or whatever, 1,000 talents to his master. It's like about $3 billion. Probably a uh, talent was about 75 pounds. It doesn't say here whether it was gold or silver or what, but it's certainly a lot of money that the, that the master is entrusting to these servants by giving them you know, five, two, and one talent worth of this precious metal. The fact that we use the word talent now to mean like you know, gift or special aptitude actually comes from this text. About um, Sometime during the medieval church, probably around the 1200s, our first first recordings of sermons using the word talent here, and a priest saying, God has given you all talents too, meaning not money, but it's come to me now in our culture, like aptitude or gift. It comes from this text. Also, the wicked servant, editorial note number two, the wicked servant is going to bury the money. This is not as bizarre as it seems to us. Uh, money in the ancient world would frequently be protected by being buried. In fact, you can go on eBay and buy Roman coins because it's not infrequently that people in the Mediterranean basin will find them by you know, digging up their yard for a garden or by construction workers digging a road. They'll find people who had coins that people had buried a long time ago as a way to keep them safe. So what he does is wrong, of course, but it's not bizarre. It sounds bizarre to our ears. Okay, into the gospel reading, verses 14 through 30. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of the Lord. Okay, so last week, do you remember the gospel reading from last week? It was the parable of the wise and foolish girls who were there to celebrate, help celebrate the wedding feast. This parable comes right after. So we're gonna, this is the end of the church year. We're talking about the return of Jesus. It's gonna be a three-part series here on Matthew 25 that's in the lectionary. And it's these three parables back to back. It's the parable of the wise and foolish girls from last week, the parable of the talents from this week, and the parable of the sheep and the goats from last week. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's, he's preaching a series of short sermons which are designed to tell you Three, three parables. The first one, be ready for Jesus' return. That was the message of the parable last week. Watch and be ready because Jesus is coming back. The second one this week is, what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to watch? He defines readiness. And then next week, the parable of the sheep and goats, he's going to describe readiness. He's going to say, so here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. So these are all gonna build on each other. And today we're focusing on a parable number two, the parable of the talents where Jesus defines what it means to watch and wait. And let me just tell you right off, right off the bat, what he's going to say is this, is that watching and waiting is not passive, but it involves 
doing on our part. It's active responsibility. Part of waiting for Jesus, part of waiting for the new creation is not, you know, sitting around, you know, well, just, you know, I'm praying and reading my Bible and waiting for Jesus to come back. That's not what's going on here. It's uh, action. It's doing things. Being ready means investing talents, whatever that means here. Okay, so what I, when I was looking at it this week, um, that's the setup. When I was looking at this uh, parable this week, uh, I thought I'm going to spend some time looking at, so kind of the story is sort of boring a little bit until you get to the part where the, un, the, the unfaithful servant comes and explains to the master, here's what I did with the talent that you loaned, which you gave to me to, uh, you know, to work for you. I buried it in the ground and he gives, him, he gives him this rationale, and I thought, I'm going to dig into that a little bit this week and think about what's the motivation? What was the motivation of the unfaithful servant? Why did he do, why did he do this? Why didn't he do what the faithful servants did? And so uh, can I talk about that for just a few minutes? The, the first clue here is in verse uh, 24, if you look at that with me. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, uh, master, I knew you to be a hard man. He says, he starts off, the first thing he says to him is, he said, the first thing he says to the master is, like, I know you're a hard man. That word hard there, it means um, rough, like severe, like very serious, not pleasant. A hard person is somebody who's not pleasant, very unlikable. Uh, let, me, let me give you one more example where this word is used in the New Testament. It's not used a lot, but in Jude 14 through 16, um, Jude is actually quoting Enoch, and Enoch is prophesying, actually about the day of the Lord, interestingly enough, prophesying about who it is that God is going to punish on the last day, and he says this, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the hard things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he goes on to describe what, what this looks like. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters. They say hard things against God. And basically, what it, you know, because they don't like him. This is essentially what it is. All right. To call, to, to call the master hard is to say, you know, you're just not a pleasant person. I knew that you're severe. I knew that you're rough. I know that you're unlikable. Okay, and so I don't, this is, so what we're looking at here is why would it, what is the motivation behind, behind an unbeliever's rebellion against the master? And the answer, to, to, just to, I mean, I know it's not fancy or complicated or deeply philosophical. The answer, quite frankly, is that he just doesn't like the master. There's a podcast I listen to, which, I, which I, is one of my favorites. It's called Unbelievable. It's, uh, it's a Brit British podcast, and it's a series of conversations. Each episode is a conversation, typically between an atheist and a Christian, sometimes between you know, two Christians who disagree about certain topics, sometimes between somebody in another religion, like a Muslim and a Christian. Uh, you know, very civil, very friendly, but um, conversations between the two. And, and the host of that podcast, he spends his time, he's the director of apologetics for the company that produces this podcast, and he said, I heard him say one time that most atheists who are honest will tell him that I have philosophical reasons for being an atheist, but the reason why I have those philosophical reasons is because I have one primary reason behind those reasons, and that is I just don't like the Christian view of God. Like, he's a bully, like he's bossy, he demands that his followers worship him and do everything he tells them. And I just don't like that. Now, coming out of that will be, you know, philosophical reasons. But the philosophical reasons will be, you know, the, 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 you know we rationalize what our predilections already are. And, you know, God is unlikable to many people, this notion of God. He's a hard man. He's not pleasant. You're rough and you're severe. I didn't really have motivation to do what you wanted me to do because, frankly, I just don't like you very much. Now, What's interesting about this is that, that I should kind of make a side comment real quick here. I'm going to interrupt myself. So that's a sign of a, a weak mind or encroaching senility that, that I do that. For those of you who have, like, there's, a, there's this big concern. Can I talk to those of you who are Lutherans? I know not all of you are. 
But there's this concern in the LCMS that our churches are getting smaller and smaller and that our children are abandoning the faith. And children abandon the faith for many different reasons. It, it, quite possibly, you know, it's very, way too complex a topic for me to address in 30 seconds. But can I say this? One of the reasons why that might be the case is that we present a God who is unlikable. Now, I'm not saying that we gussy up God or, you know, like we put makeup on him and we all kind of know he's not, he, we know that he's kind of offensive, but if we kind of make him look nice, people will like him. I'm not saying like try to make him attractive. I'm just saying sometimes we have, especially those of us who are theologically orthodox, we have this way of talking about God, which is a half truth. We make it the whole truth. And by doing that, we make it like not true. And the way goes like this, like God is angry, God hates sinners, and God had to send his son. You know, so, so sometimes it's, it's almost like we understand John 3.16 to mean not for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, but God hated sinners so much that he had to send his only son. That's how we explain it, and that's how we think about it. And that's for, 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 you know, for, for some of us, you've lived like that for a long time, and you're kind of like come to grips with this, and you know that God loves you, but this is the way you talk about it. But maybe for our kids and for outsiders, this is, I don't want to say off-putting like we should try to avoid this. But what we need to say is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that God is actually in love with you. We'll come back to this more in a second, that this notion of God being in love with us, God passionately caring about us. That one of the reasons why we make it easy to abandon God by picturing God as something that he is not, and that is completely consumed with wrath and anger at you for your sins. That's not the story that the Bible tells. It's not the story that this parable tells. And when the bad servant says, like, you're a hard guy, like, this is what he's saying is, I don't have any motivation to obey you or to serve you or to belong to you because you're just not a pleasant guy to be around. You're severe. You're too rough. I'm scared of you. I'm scared of you. Right. So anyway, to back, uh, back to where I was before, and I apologize for that. Um, that's, that's the underlying rationale. He doesn't like God. But now he does come up with, he does come up with uh, a rationale to tell him. And here's what it is. He says, basically, he says, I don't like you. I go back to, uh, uh, where are we at? Verse 24. He says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. And then here's the rationale. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So what, what he means is this, is like, I know that you don't sow seed, but you get the profit from it, Right? You don't do any of the labor. You're not out here like doing any of the farm work, but you expect your workers to like do all the work and then you get the profit. Do you see what's happening? So number one, baseline, I don't like you, God. My rationale is because you're a bully. Like you, we do all the work down here and you expect us to praise you. We ex you expect us to show up at your building once a week. You expect us to obey all your rules. We don't even get to have any fun. You expect us to give you money. And then when my mom is sick, where are you at? This is what he's saying. He, he, he resents God because God is a bully. God is a tyrant. God demands labor and he gives you back nothing in return. This flows out of his dislike for God, his dis disconnection from God personally. This is, this is a common argument against Christianity, right? Which I told the 745 service I had this conversation just this week at Lewis and Clark. It was prior to the Zoom class, I, you know, my, the class on Tuesday evenings, comparative religion, and, which is difficult because I don't really get, a, you know, I can't really overtly evangelize in there. But, you know, before class and students are sort of like signing on and there's uh, one of the girls in there asked me about uh, my religious background and I kind of put it off on her and ask her about hers, and she says, you know, she tells me her story, and another girl jumps on and says, basically, yeah, I, I grew up Christian too, but I'm more spiritual now. Um, I know this girl uh, fairly well. She said, I'm more spiritual now, and the reason is is because I came to see that God is just a bully, and that the, the God they portray is just a bully, and that he uses shame and guilt to make you do what he wants you to do. It's a fancy way of saying God tells you what to do, doesn't give you anything in return, but does tell you, like, I'm going to give you shame and guilt if you don't obey me, right? It's a common view of God, which flows out of a dislike for God, right? That's the rationale we use because we dislike God. I can't believe in a God who would be such a big bully like that. 
Now, here's what's interesting, to me at least. I don't know. We'll see what, what you guys think. That the master here does not say, wait a second, that's not true. Really, I'm a super nice guy. He doesn't say that, even though it's not true. And he is kind and loving, which we'll look at that from the rest of the parable. But here's what he says. Check this out. He says this. Uh, you wicked and slothful, this is verse 26. You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seeds. You're convinced that I'm a bully? You're convinced that I'm cruel? That I demand from you without giving any, anything in return? Well then, verse 27, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Do you see what he's saying here? You thought that I was a cruel tyrant? You thought that I was a bully? That's actually not an excuse. You still should have served me and obeyed me. That's not enough to go on for all your life, right? It's not enough to go on believing that God is a bully, but it's enough to start with. If that's all you have, if you dislike God and you're convinced that he's a bully, it's enough to start on that you should know, I need to obey this guy. I don't like him. I think he's a bully, but he's the sovereign God of the universe. And so whether I like him or not is, is irrelevant. He demands to be obeyed. That's the kind of, so here's, here's what it's like. When, you know, I, I, can't, I can't serve you. You're just a big bully. That's like standing on the shore watching a tidal wave heading towards you. And to be like, you know what? That tidal wave is gonna do so much damage. That's all tidal waves do. It's gonna get in here and it's gonna destroy my village. It's gonna kill half of us. It's gonna ruin our economy. It's gonna set this coastline back two decades. I'm not gonna believe in it. I just refuse to believe in it. That would just be foolishness. You don't have to like the tidal wave. But if it's bearing down on you, you best believe in it. Now, again, like I said, that's not enough to go on for eternity. <laughs> you know, so, my, my, so my kid is two years old and he runs out into the street. And I grab his arm and I say, get back here now. For the moment, that's all he needs. He doesn't need to like me and, and he won't. If I yank his arm, he doesn't understand cars coming in the street. If I yank his arm and tell him to get back here, he's not gonna like it, but that's not the point. He needs to be saved right now, and that means whether you like your dad or not yanking you back off the street, you gotta go with it. Now, it's not enough to go on. Eventually, he's gonna have to realize, I'm gonna have to show him that I love him. I'm gonna have to demonstrate that I care passionately for him, that my relationship with him is not based on, I boss you around and you do what I tell you and I get all the benefits, and I, I get to use you up like a servant. That's not, it's not gonna work forever, but that's where this guy's at. This is where he's at right now. There's a better there's a better, it's, if that's all you have to go on. If, if, if right now that's where you're at with God, like I can't believe in you because you're just not, you don't do anything for me and you're cruel. I'm just gonna tell you, stop and think about what you're saying. That you're, you're, you have not made a philosophical argument against God. You, you have indicated that you don't like God. That's okay. There's lots of people in the Bible who are Christians who don't like God. Job doesn't like God. There are sometimes when Paul doesn't like God. That's not the point. The point that is, if he's God, he must be obeyed. But if you're gonna live this Christian life, you're gonna need a better motivation than that to keep going. And that brings us to the two faithful servants, okay? What's their motivation here? We'll, we'll go back here in a second and, and reread, um, uh, reread the, the text about them. But their motivation, I'll just let me just tell you up front, their motivation is that they're convinced that the master loves them, that their master takes delight in them. There are four sub-motivations underneath that that I'm gonna give you right now, the fourth one being more important than the first three. And it goes like this. How are they convinced that the master loves them? Here's the first thing. The master gives them gifts. So he gives them the talents, right? He gives them these immense amounts of money. And then when the whole story is over, verse 28, he takes the talent from the guy, the unfaithful servant, and gives it to the one who has 10 talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance, but, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Our God is a gift-giving God. Our God, far from being the harsh master who reaps where he does not sow, our God loves to give us gifts. He gives his servants big, massive amounts of gifts here. He loves to give gifts. Now, um, if you're following along, you might be thinking, wait a second. That's not actually a gift he's giving them. That's his money, the talents. And then they give it back to him, right? So he's not giving, you're calling it a gift, but he's, and he's calling it a gift. He's saying, to, for, you know, to whom much has been given, more will be given. It doesn't sound like a gift to me. It sounds like he's just using them to increase 
what, hit, what, what what's already his. And I will say that if that, that part of us that thinks like that is actually the unfaithful servant part of us that sees God's gifts as, well, he's just, he's just using me. God's just using me, you know, to, to, for his own benefit. That actually the gifts God gives are for, you know, who, who, so who are they for? God's gifts, are they for him or are they for us? Which one? And the answer, of, of course, is yes, right? They're for both. God gives good gifts to his people because he wants his people to have good gifts and because he knows that he gets those good gifts in the end. Do you guys remember if you were here or if you listened to the sermon, uh, Reformation Day, I was talking about justification by faith from Galatians 2 and making the point that the heart, the reality of justification by faith is this. You are justified. In other words, you have value and worth. You can wake up in the morning and look at yourself in the mirror and know that I deserve to be here not because of anything that, that you are or because you do. Everything about you will let itself down. Everything about your friends and your skills and the material things you have will always let you down. You have value and worth because the creator God looks at you and says, I love you passionately because of my son, Jesus Christ. That's your justification. In that sermon, I, I, I did that. Remember that quote I, I gave you from uh, Chariots of Fire, the Eric Liddell quote? You know, he's the famous uh, British Olympic runner from the 19-something-something uh, Olympics. And he said, he's talking to his sister, and he said, I know that God has called me to be a missionary, but God has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. I feel God's pleasure. So remember that quote? Go back to that quote in your mind for a second. God gives Eric Liddell a gift of running fast. Who gets that gift? Why does God make Eric Liddell fast? It's because, answer number one, because God likes watching Eric Liddell run fast. Why did God give you whatever gift you have, whatever it is? You're, you know, you're smart, you're hardworking, you're a super friendly person, you're an incredibly loyal friend, you have, you have more money. Why did God give you that thing? You know why? Because God loves watching you spend your money. God loves watching you be a loyal friend. God loves watching you make dinner. God loves watching you eat dinner. God loves watching you clean up after dinner. God loves everything about you. The gifts he gives you are for his own benefit, but they're also for your benefit. Eric Liddell likes running fast. You like being a friendly person. You like being smart. You like being funny. You like being hard, whatever it is. You like those things. You like the gifts that you have. It's not an either or. And anybody who's ever had kids and given them a present knows what I'm talking about. Like you give that gift to them and, and a huge part of giving them that gift is incredibly selfish because it gives you, you're designed to be this way. You're designed to get intense pleasure out of seeing your kids' pleasure. God himself made us and our families to look like him and that's why God himself gets intense pleasure. It is a gift back to God himself that he gives you the gifts. It's not an either or situation right here. And this is why he says in verse 29 that the more you enjoy the gift, those who use the gift will get even more. Because the more you enjoy the gift that he's given you, the more you enjoy the talents that he's given you, that you use them for his glory and for your good, the more you get from them. The more you experience what it's like to live in the love of a gift-giving God. The two, the two first servants know that God is not giving them some tool to manipulate them. He know, they know that God is a gift-giving God because he loves them. Here's the second thing. Freedom. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Now, that word traded there is not in the Greek. It's actually just the word worked. He worked with them. Just the word for worked. It's very, very vague. It's not trade. We don't know. You know, we know the master went away a long time. We don't know how these guys made money, and it's not important because it's actually a, a story of fiction. There's really no world outside of it. There's no, there's no, you can't know what they really did because they don't actually exist except in Jesus' story, right? But, I mean, just suppose back in the day, you can imagine the things. They did. Maybe they bought a field, and maybe they planted crops and made money that way. Maybe they invested in a business. They bought a business. Maybe they lent their money. We don't know. Jews weren't supposed to lend their money, even at usury, except to Gentiles, so that probably wasn't it. But we don't know what it was, and it's intentionally vague because it doesn't matter. The master does not say, so far from, you know, the unfaithful servant is like, you're just a cruel taskmaster, you know, you're such a bully. But far from being that way, the, the real master, the heart of the master is to say, here's these talents, use them. There is a thing, you know, you know what's going on here? Holy improvisation, holy improvisation. 
Here's the talents. I'm not giving you any rules. Just go have a good time with them. Just go use them. There's a story I like to tell. I just told it to the new members class last week. Some of you have heard this before. So what we have here is a script for a play. It, it, it insists that it's a play telling the story of the whole universe from the beginning to the end. And you and I are actors in this script. And what you'll notice when you, when you start studying the script is that, you know, it does tell the story of the whole universe. Creation and fall, act one. Uh, the calling of Israel, act two. Jesus, his kingdom proclamation, his life, his death, his resurrection, act three. The rise of the early church powered by the Holy Spirit, act four. New creation, when God sets everything to right and makes all, makes, makes all the injustice go away, makes all sickness go away, makes all broken relationships healed, makes all broken bodies cured. That's act five. And when you get into act four, though, you'll notice that our part is missing in the play. It ends at Acts 28. You know, act, act four, scene two ends, and then there's this blank spot with act four, scene three, right before act five. And what, what, what's the point of that? Why doesn't God tell us in here what to do? Why doesn't God tell me in the Bible, you know, who, who I should marry or where I should go to school or what job should, should I have or should I downsize my house or, you know, should I buy the new car or whatever? Why doesn't God tell me that? Because he wants you in the power of the Holy Spirit to improvise. He's given you the gifts and in his love, he says, just go use them. Do whatever you want within the bounds of the story, right? Within the bounds of the story, you can do whatever you want. That's love. Only love would say, now you might be like, well, maybe he just doesn't care. No, this is an awful lot of money we're talking about here. Like, if I don't have anything invested, I mean, but I might be like, Paul, I don't care where you go to lunch, whatever. But if, I'm, if, I, have to pay for the, if I have to pay the bill, I really, really want to know, you know, is he going to go someplace fancy or is he going to go to Arby's? I kind of want to know that. There's a lot of money that the master has invested here. And to be able to turn over that amount of money and not give any sort of directions, but just say, go, do it. That's, that's an incredible amount of freedom, the kind of freedom that can only come from real legitimate love. Like, I'm, I totally believe in you he says to us. It's a huge gamble on his part. He is buying into us and saying, whatever you want to do, just holy improvisation. That's the second thing. So first of all, uh, he gives us gifts. Second of all, he gives us freedom. Third, he gives us increased trust. He trusts us. That's a part of the, the freedom, right? You know, that he trusts us with his, with his money, with his talents. But the, the trust increases the more that you use it. Look what he says in verse um, uh, 21. Now, these are gifts that he's given us that belong to him. But in verse 21, he says this to the, uh, the faithful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. He says the same thing to the second servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. There's this kind of, like if you've, if you've grown up, like we've talked about this last week, if you've grown up, grown up in the Christian culture of, you know, God, you know, Jesus died and rose from the dead to take us to heaven when we die, which isn't in the Bible, by the way, then you might have this notion of like, oh, this life here is a struggle I just can't wait to die. I'm going to go sit up on that cloud and take it easy and maybe talk to some old friends. Actually, do you know what's going on here? Is that the work that you're doing with the talents that God has given you, it's a proving ground for increased amount of work in the new creation. The stuff that you do now, you'll be doing forever. So what Lewis, you know, the great C.S. Lewis quote about, in the new creation, we will look back on our current lives here and think, well, heaven already started back then. That was already, it already began. My life connected to Jesus was active back then. The things that I was doing at my job, with my family, for recreation, I'm just doing those now, but with higher levels of trust and intensity from the one who loves me. This is, uh, th th this can only happen with somebody, this, this can only flow out of love, that this increased trust would be given. It's like the Karate Kid, you know, remember that movie? Uh, well, of course you do, uh, if you're of a certain age. You know, so Mr. Miyagi has the karate kid like doing the waxing thing and the painting the fence thing. And he doesn't know why he's doing that. He's like, why am I doing all this? And the answer is, is so that the, when the real deal happens, you'll have these skills, you know, to fight in the big uh, karate match. And that's what's going on here. We are doing work as Christians. Remember, the second, we, we wait for the second coming of Jesus, not by sitting around and singing pious songs and looking to the skies but by doing our vocations, by using the talents and gifts he's got. That's the way that we wait. And when we do that, we are setting ourselves up for increased responsibilities when Jesus returns and repairs all of creation. This is the third thing, increased trust. And here's the last thing. And I told you this was the most important thing. This is at the heart of all of it. He actually gives, you know, so he gives, uh, he gives gifts. And, you know, he gives freedom. He gives increasing, ever-increasing amounts of trust. 
But the main thing that he gives is himself. The main thing that God wants to give you is himself. Right, so look back at verse 21. He's talking to the faithful servant and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of your master. What's the ultimate motivation? What have they been doing all this? What are those of you who know and love Jesus? What are you doing? Why are you going to work in the morning? Why are you getting up and making your kids food? You know, why are you mowing your yard? Why are you playing golf? Why are you doing all these things? You know why? At the heart of it is because you long for and crave for the joy of your master, the joy of your creator. You want to know and experience what it's like for God to be completely pleased with you. Now we've come back full circle to the justification by faith thing, right? This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is all about this, that you have entered into my joy. Now he's calling him to enter. It's not that the master, I haven't been happy with you before, and now I realize that I am, and now you've entered into my happiness. It's more like if I give you know, one of my kids or my wife a hug, I open my arms, and I, I wouldn't say anything this cheesy because it would be cheesy. Enter into the joy of my presence. I would not say anything that stupid, but this is what I'm saying. I, you know, I, I already love you. I already take deep, intense pleasure in who you are as my wife and my kids. Hugging you, holding on to you is a way for you to experience that, for a way for you to enter into that. And that's what the new creation is. It's a final, complete, and full realization and experience of the love that the Father already has for you. This is the fuel for waiting. This is the fuel of the gospel. This is what put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't our sins primarily that held him there. It wasn't satisfying God's wrath primarily that held him there. All those things are true. It's God's passionate love and commitment for you. It's the fact that when God watches you make dinner, he smiles. When God watches you take a test or study for, your, you know, for a class, he smiles. When God watches you pull off a project at work, it makes him happy. When God watches you go out and jog or ride your bike, it makes him, it gives him deep, intense pleasure. Way more than anybody else on earth could ever be happy. Way more than you could ever be happy with yourself. God himself is happy with you. That's the fuel of the gospel. That's the fuel of our lives here, waiting for him to return by serving him, by enjoying our talents, by giving them back to him, by investing our lives in our family, in our friends, in our community, by caring for the environment, by worshiping, by doing all the things I've talked about from making dinner to doing golf. The heart of that is experiencing, knowing, you should feel God's passionate love for you. All right, stand with me and pray, and then we'll have communion. Let's pray. God, help us uh, to, this morning to really, really soak and sit in as we wait for you, as we wait for your son to return and to make all things new and to undo all the bad. Help us to live and soak in this passionate love that you have for us, the fact that you love to give us gifts, that you love to give us freedom, that you trust us so much and that that trust is increasing as we live and grow and change in you. And God, I'll admit that I frequently will use your wrath against sin as a manipulative tool to guilt, to create guilt in my own heart, to create guilt in my kids' hearts, to create guilt in my family here, their hearts. And God, forgive me for that and help us to refocus anew. In spite of my bad sermons, help us to refocus anew on your passionate love for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. Father, there are so many people who are struggling right now and as the... Um, uh, virus numbers ramp up here again, it's not going to be any less for a while. I pray that you would give healing and hope, uh, give renewed strength and energy emotionally, physically, mentally, psychologically, socially to everybody who's struggling. I want to pray this morning that you would be with uh, uh, the, uh, John's family as uh, his father had a stroke this week and give them comfort and hope as uh, they have tough decisions to make and um, worrying about what the right thing to do is and health and healing for um, everybody involved there. I also want to pray for Joyce, who went into the hospital this week with uh, struggling with uh, uh, some uh, pain and nausea, uh, having to do with um, uh, heart problems. I pray that you would give her doctors wisdom as they advise her, as they treat her, uh, bring her back uh, quickly to full health. Uh, God, bring us all quickly to full health in, in all the different aspects of what it means to be your creatures, and especially help us to lean on and to hope for the day when your son Jesus returns and raises us from the dead and makes all things new. Lord, in your mercy.
God, we can only pray these things because you've made us your children. You've bound us to your son, Jesus, so that he is our brother. And that makes us your children, your daughters, and your sons. And so we come into your presence with boldness, praying to you as our Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith now with the words of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now let's pray in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Two. 